everyone. Welcome to Is It Legal? I am your host, Dave Plow. This week, we're bringing you a conversation I had with Ann Slaughter Andrew. Ann has had a distinguished career. If you recognize her name, it's likely because from 2008 to 2012, she was the U.S. ambassador to Costa Rica. But before that, Ann was a lawyer, specifically an environmental lawyer. When I graduated from the law school, I joined the law firm that was then known as Baker and Daniels, and I started as a young associate, and I practiced in two areas. One was in tax law, and the other was environmental law. And I worked under J.B. King, who was, for those who may be older uh, practicing lawyers in your audience, he was quite a legend uh, in Indiana. And after six months, I decided that uh, my passion was in environmental law, and I was told that I had to go sit down with the senior partner of the law firm and tell him that I didn't want to practice in his chosen area. And it was one of the most intimidating days of my life. <laughs> but I knew if I had the courage to do that, that I was sure about my passion for environmental law and had a wonderful opportunity to practice environmental law at Baker and Daniels for close to 20 years. What all did you do as an environmental lawyer there? You know, some of the areas that I worked on, um, well, let me back up. I started practicing environmental law in the early 80s, and I had the great opportunity of really following the history of our environmental laws. I practiced uh, Clean Water Act. I practiced in the Superfund area. I practiced under the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, RECRA, which handles toxic and hazardous materials. Uh, and I practiced uh, Clean Air Act law. So I really had a chance to have a very broad understanding of our environmental laws and how they work. One of the things that I enjoyed greatly about being able to practice environmental law here in Indiana was that oftentimes some of the problems you encounter and the solutions are ones that come from the states. And one of the things we found is that uh, with Superfund, there was a solution brewing in the states to recognize that we had to find a way to clean up a number of these dirty areas, many in the Midwest, to a standard that would allow for development. Uh, and those were known as brownfields. So the ability to clean up brownfields. And I was able to work with a number of different um, organizations, people at a local, state, and federal level to help launch the Indiana brownfield laws and regulations. And that was a terrific opportunity. How did you make the transition from environmental lawyer to ambassador? Well, I've been asked many times, uh, especially by some younger students, uh, that they say they want to be an ambassador when they grow up. And how do you become an ambassador? And my only answer to that is, if you truly want to be an ambassador, then you join the State Department uh, and the Foreign Service, uh, and you hope that in 20 or 30 years of service with them that you become uh, an ambassador. Uh, the other route, which is the route that I took, was that I had a wonderful career at practicing law, um, starting several businesses, uh, and um, worked very closely with President Obama and his campaign in 2008 uh, and was chosen uh, by the president to serve as a political appointee as ambassador. Uh, I think that one of the areas that was uh, where my environmental background and my ambassadorship 
uh, connected was that uh, the president asked if I would serve in Costa Rica, which is a country that is known for its biodiversity and its commitment to conservation. Uh, and I told the president I couldn't think of a country that would make me more excited about serving uh, in his administration. Okay, so it wasn't a very tough decision then to say <laughs> yes to that. Well, I, you know, I will offer this. Uh, it, I knew that what it meant was that we would have to move our family to a different country for four years. Uh, and my children were in high school at the time. Uh, my husband uh, was the chair of a international law firm, and he probably would only be able to fly in and spend weekends. So we did, as a family, give it quite a lot of thought. Uh, and I'm delighted that my husband and my children were so supportive because it was really one of the greatest experiences, I think, for all of us. So what was it like living there? Just uh, foreign country, you're not home. You know, what was it like just packing up and living there? You know, one of the things that I think it would be hard for me to imagine, but it certainly was true, is that once you pack everything up and you move to a new country, that country does uh, take on many of the attributes of home. You know, it is where my children went to high school and, you know, we, where we spent our weekends. Uh, so it does, you do become settled, uh, which I, I would not have imagined would have happened. Uh, but you certainly never forget uh, where home really is uh, and all of the differences between uh, the country uh, where you are from uh, and the country where you're living. Is there a lot of our influence, a lot of American U.S. influence in their culture? You know, Costa Rica and the United States share a very strong partnership, and the Costa Ricans are one of our strongest allies in Latin America. It is the uh, oldest and uh, most thriving of the democracies in Latin America. So as a result of that, uh, there are many aspects of the culture that we would find uh, at least familiar. Uh, they have a sense of rule of law uh, that is uh, closer to the U.S. than most of the countries in Latin America. Uh, they certainly have a respect for uh, U.S. law and for the opportunities that U.S. law and U.S. business offer to Costa Rica. As the ambassador, what do you feel your top responsibilities were? Well, as ambassador, uh, every ambassador's top responsibility is the safety and security of U.S. citizens. Uh, and that's true with regard to U.S. citizens that are living or visiting Costa Rica. And it's true as it relates to the role that we can play uh, in Costa Rica to make the U.S. more secure. And the way that would uh, play out is that, as many people may be aware, uh, in Central America, it is a source of much of the drug trafficking that comes uh, through and into the United States. So the more that we could focus on working with Costa Rica uh, to increase their security and their ability to uh, address the drug trafficking across Costa Rica and across Central America, the more secure the United States would be. Okay, so what was your part in addressing that, those issues? We worked very closely with the Costa Rican government. Uh, our belief, and I should say my belief, and, and the strategy that we undertook at Embassy San Jose was that 
the U.S. would be more successful in our partnership and programming with Costa Rica if we would invest where Costa Rica was invested. So rather than launch new programs or new initiatives, we worked very closely with the Costa Rican government to find out what they were doing that was of interest to them that we thought was effective and could be better leveraged with U.S. partnership. So specific examples, uh, we worked very carefully with the um, Costa Rican security agencies to help them put in place a very similar type of radio system and program that we've seen be very effective in places like New York City. Uh, rather than patrolling everywhere as if crime was ubiquitous across the country, you know there are places where uh, there are crime hotspots or there are drug trafficking hotspots. How do you deploy your resources to those places where you can have the most impact and most effect? And that was one of the most successful programs we did with Costa Rica with regard to drug trafficking. Well, what was the U.S.'s relations like with Costa Rica before you got there? And what was it like continuing to build on those? What did you do to continue to build on those? Well, the, um, in addition to security, uh, there were two other areas that were at President Obama's agenda that were on the agenda of Costa Rica and, and certainly were consistent with my agenda, which were uh, shared prosperity and clean energy. Uh, those were areas that before I arrived, Costa Rica had a great commitment to. Uh, Costa Rica is uh, the country in uh, Latin America that has the least amount of economic disparity. Uh, they also are the country that has the highest level of green power. So this was a legacy that preceded me, but it was a great opportunity. Uh, and again, back to my theme, it, it was a place where Costa Rica had already invested. So our investments in partnering with them were much more impactful. And frankly, the U.S. taxpayers got much more for their money uh, when we would work with Costa Rica to further that which they were already pursuing. Everyone kind of knows what an ambassador is. No one knows what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Can you take me through a little bit of that? Sure. I think to have a better understanding of what an ambassador does, and, and I have to share with you and your listeners that before I became ambassador, I'm not sure I knew what ambassadors did. So, But I think to understand what ambassadors do, you have to first understand what the embassy looks like. Uh, and I led an embassy of about 300 people. Uh, about half of those people were uh, Costa Ricans. Uh, and um, uh, I should say two-thirds were Costa Ricans, and about a third were USNs. Uh, we had more than 11 U.S. agencies represented at the embassy, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Commerce, the FBI, the uh, Drug Enforcement Agency, um, and um, a number of other uh, organizations uh, or federal agencies involved. So what we try to do at the embassy, if you, will, if you think of an embassy as we are uh, a whole-of-government opportunity to work with another country to advance U.S. interests within that country. So we have trade issues that we want to advance. We have security issues we want to advance. Uh, we have um, education opportunities we want to advance. We obviously deal very much with U.S. tourists that are in the country and need security and support. We also work, we have a visa office and we issue visas to Costa Ricans who wish to visit the United States. So all of the things that would involve both the people of the country as well as the government in their interrelationship with the U.S. across the board of all the different agencies of the U.S., all of that gets housed within the embassy. 
So the day-to-day -day of a U.S. ambassador's life, uh, you know, is as it would be for any CEO in, in any large company, it's a lot of meetings. Uh, so, you know, I would meet with my senior staff and we would think about our strategies, we'd think about our branding, uh, we'd think about our effect and impact. Uh, occasionally we'd have personnel issues we'd have to address. Uh, and then you would meet with the different uh, agencies and their particular programs. You'd spend a lot of time uh, with outreach to the government and outreach to the people. Uh, and, and then also working very closely with your fellow ambassadors uh, from the other countries. Uh, Costa Rica probably had about 40 different countries, uh, maybe, maybe 40 to 50 countries uh, who had ambassadors residing in San Jose. Uh, and obviously these were my colleagues with whom I would work on, again, projects that were of mutual interest uh, to the United States and to these countries. So I will say my day started at 8 o'clock in the morning and oftentimes ended at 8 or 9 o'clock at night. Uh, it is, um, it was, I've always been known to be a hard worker and I can tell you I've never worked harder than when I was U.S. ambassador, but I also think that I've never had uh, the opportunity to have as much impact in what I've been doing. When we return, we will talk with Anne about her current projects, one of which started as a biofuel company but has since transformed into much more than that. But first, our sponsors at IU McKinney School of Law want you to know that the environmental energy and natural resources law program, which includes a graduate certificate for JD students, can help you turn your passion for the environment into an exciting career in private practice or working for a nonprofit organization or a government agency. Find out more at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. Coming back, being ambassador to a foreign country affords you with the opportunity to do something not many people get, to work with the President of the United States. I asked Anne what it was like to work with President Obama and his team. It was uh, a wonderful opportunity to serve uh, President Obama and his team. Uh, and working also with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton uh, and her team at the State Department. Uh, and, you know, we obviously, because of our shared interests uh, in uh, clean energy and in shared prosperity, uh, it was a great opportunity for me to have some time with the President to talk about what we were interested in, the goals we were looking to accomplish, uh, and how we could be effective in advancing those. Uh, I was very lucky that at the end of my term, President Obama came to Costa Rica, and we had a summit for all of the Central American presidents, uh, and it was a great opportunity for me to work with the president in his office in planning this summit. Uh, and again, we focused on, one of the main focuses was on clean energy. But I will tell you my, my favorite story uh, was that uh, when the president arrived, uh, he asked if I would join him in his motorcade as we drove to uh, a hotel where we had gathered all of the people from the embassy, including the embassy families and my children, uh, for a time to uh, meet and greet and spend some time talking with the president. And when I arrived at the hotel and got out of the limousine with the president, and he was very kind to walk up, and my children were standing there with the president's um, Secret Service agents, and we walked up and took a picture, and as the president walked away, my children said to me, Mom, all the Secret Service guys told us that he 
only asks very special people <laughs> to ride with them. You must be really important. So my admiration with my teenage children lasted for five minutes, but it was worth it. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great bump right there. Anytime you can get your kids to be like, whoa, that's really something. Like that's a, that's a good feeling right there. Well, I can assure you that my children would tell you that being the ambassadors, being teenagers living in the ambassador's residence was not exactly how they planned to spend their teenage What's years. What's the ambassador's residence like? You know, I was very lucky. I, the ambassador's residences um, can vary greatly, uh, but it, the residence in San Jose was a home that was large enough for us to do official entertaining, which is important, uh, but still had uh, a feel of being a real home, uh, which, was, which was important to us. Um, and, you know, and also wonderful for us with the weather that we have in Costa Rica, it had a lot of outdoor space for um, dining and spending time outdoors, which was terrific. We've, met, we've talked a lot about biofuels uh, being green. Can you tell me more about Terra Aviv, which started as a biofuel and is no longer? So one of the uh, opportunities I had when I left the State Department was that my husband and I had launched a startup what we thought was a biofuels company right before I became ambassador. Obviously, I had to step away during my time as ambassador, but I'm so delighted that when I completed my tour, our company was still alive. Uh, and so I joined the company as chairman of the board and have been working with our wonderful CEO and team at TerraViva. Uh, and TerraViva, our, our product, our company, uh, is to commercialize a tree called Pongamia, which has a seed oil, and the seed oil has the same qualities as soybean and palm, which means it has the opportunity and properties that would allow it to be utilized as a biofuel, uh, as a protein, as animal feed, and we think there's a great opportunity potentially uh, as a fertilizer uh, or as a pesticide. How do, you, how do you harness this from it? What do you do? Well, I, I will tell you, it's hard work. Uh, commercializing uh, a plant or a tree that has never been commercialized before takes a tremendous amount of time, uh, a lot of expertise. What we have to do is, from hundreds of varieties of these trees, find those varieties that are prolific flowers uh, that will uh, produce seed pods at approximately the same time on a consistent basis uh, and will pollinate uh, appropriately. Uh, so a lot of plant uh, agronomy, uh, and at the same time, we're developing the market for the offtake uh, and trying to find people who are in the agriculture business uh, who are willing to take the leap uh, as early adopters to grow these trees so that we can test out uh, and pilot the growing of the trees. Where can you grow these trees? Pangamia is a tree that is ubiquitous to India and Australia. Uh, it does not flourish above a freeze line, but that gives us the opportunity to work with the citrus growers in Florida uh, who are looking desperately to uh, diversify their crops with the citrus greening that's going on. And we, are, uh, we have about 300 test pilot acres in Florida. Uh, we are working in Hawaii and we have a grant from the Department of Defense and the Department of Navy that is very interested in finding a way that they can uh, grow fuel on Hawaii because Hawaii has no petroleum resources. Uh, and to be able to have a fuel 
that could be available on the island uh, would be a terrific security benefit uh, to the Navy. So we are we have about 300 acres or will in the next few years uh, under cultivation in Hawaii, uh, working with uh, under a grant from the Navy. And we're hoping this year or next year to expand into Costa, Costa Rica. Oh, great. Uh, how long do you think it's going to be before you guys are fully up and running? Well, that's a question our investors ask <laughs> us every day. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the one challenge uh, in this day and age of uh, pop-up uh, social media companies that go public in two years, uh, trees uh, just have a way of taking their time. And, uh, you know, the... And people want uh, when when you when you cultivate a crop at commercial scale, uh, it's millions of dollars of investments. So it uh, it's a time-consuming and long lead time process. But I think that we will be able to see within the next four years uh, the trees that are in pilot projects coming into uh, full bloom and maturity. Uh, and at that point, I think we will have enough data that we will have proven our uh, position about the value of this crop uh, and in the marketplace and in the field. And so we're hoping that, you know, by 2016, 2017, 2018, uh, we are scalable and have exit strategies. I'm going to use a term here that I don't know is appropriate, but that is some cool stuff. <laughs> it's just, it's got to be, it's got to be kind of a good feeling and at least it's kind of exciting to be pioneering a new, like a whole new possible fuel, possible feed, possible... Like you really don't know what all you can get out of this yet, but you know you're going to be able to get stuff. Well, the I, other part that makes this so exciting is that the Pongamia tree is an incredibly green plant. The uh, Pongamia tree is what's known as a nitrogen fixer. So instead of taking nitrogen out of the soil, it enriches the soil. Uh, it makes the soil better than it was uh, before the, the tree was growing there and allows for the opportunity for intercropping, especially if it's in places where you want to um, diversify further your uh, crop portfolio. Uh, it also, obviously, you can produce fuel uh, with a plant that's a carbon fixer because these plants will um, mature and produce for more than 40 years. Uh, you don't cut them down every year, as you do in many crops that we are looking to for fuel. Uh, you only simply harvest the seeds. Uh, and the seeds and the seed pods uh, all are um, capable of being uh, transformed into products that we can utilize. The other thing that we talked about beforehand was Ad Astro. Am I saying that right? You are. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about that Ad Astro? Ad Astro, and I'd encourage um, all of your listeners to get on and find the website for Ad Astra, A-D-A-S-T-R-A, Rocket Company. Uh, it is a great honor and very exciting for me to actually be working with uh, a rocket company that is uh, headed by uh, an astronaut, uh, Franklin Chang Diaz. And to just say briefly Franklin's story, Franklin was uh, a Costa Rican, and when he was 10 years old, looked up at the moon and told his dad that he was going to go to the moon as an astronaut. And his father said, well, Franklin, first you have to learn to speak English, then you have to become a U.S. citizen, and then you have to get into NASA and become an astronaut. And so Franklin said, 
okay. Challenge accepted. And Franklin uh, was got his doctorate at MIT as a physicist. Uh, he flew seven NASA missions, uh, more than any other uh, astronaut. Uh, and he's now developing a plasma rocket that will take us to Mars very fast. Uh, and we just received a $10 million grant from NASA uh, to take the rocket into the next stage of uh, technology readiness uh, to prepare it, hopefully, uh, to be able to do a test pilot in the next few years. Oh, wow. That's cool. I'm, I've dropped that word a few too many times now. <laughs> I just don't know what else to say to that. That's a very neat thing. Well, and on the website, and the reason I wanted to suggest it to your listeners is that uh, Franklin uh, did a, a small video, 20-minute video, that really tells you all about the history of space travel and the future of space travel. And it's really marvelous to understand something about space, which I didn't before I joined the company. Uh, the other Hoosier tie related to Ad Astra is that Franklin sits on the board of Cummins Engine Company here in Indiana, and Tim Soso, who was previously um, the CEO of Cummins, sits on the board of Ad Astra. So we have a strong uh, Hoosier Costa Rican presence uh, with Ad Astra. That's great. Uh, what, do you, what do you do with the company? I sit on the board of directors um, and chair the audit committee and work with Franklin in thinking about uh, government relations. Do you have anything that you would like to add or that you want to talk about that we haven't touched on? You know, one of the things I would just like to share when you, many people ask me, well, what is one of the coolest things that, uh, you know, you did as an ambassador or that, you know, you are proud of? And I just want to share with you all that one of the things we did that I thought was really wonderful and heartwarming was oftentimes the only time that as an ambassador you can ask U.S. businesses uh, for funds for an event is for the 4th of July party because that's such a tradition all across the world uh, that our U.S. embassies will hold a big celebration and invite uh, all of the people in the government uh, and important people that the, that the embassy does business with to come help us celebrate our 4th of July. The last year I was in Costa Rica, I thought, why are we raising money to have a party when there's things we could do that perhaps would show respect for what we are doing in our country and perhaps make the Costa Ricans just um, as happy as coming to a big party. Uh, so instead, we went to our business partner, our U.S. businesses, and we asked them if they would contribute to a scholarship fund. Uh, and the astronaut that I spoke to you about, Franklin Chang Diaz, who is the national hero of Costa Rica, uh, agreed to allow us to use his name for the scholarship. So we raised funds for the Franklin Chang Scholarship Fund in order to send high school students to the United States for one year. And the companies thought this was such a terrific idea that we raised twice as much money as we'd ever raised for a party. And we were able to send four young Costa Rican high school students to the United States for a year uh, as our way of celebrating the 4th of July and our great partnership uh, with Costa Rica. And I'm so delighted to say that one of those students, the young lady, came back to Costa Rica and took their college entrance exam and got the highest score of anybody in the entire country. Ladies and gentlemen, that is it for Ann Slaughter Andrew. My thanks to her for taking the time to talk with me. 
It was a delight to be able to sit across the table and have this conversation with her. The reason Anne was in town for this interview was because our sponsors, the IU Robert H. McKinney School of Law, was honoring her with the Distinguished Alumni Award. And they would like you to know that they are proud to announce Jan Krusher, class of 1984, is this year's Outstanding Alumna of the Year and will be honored by the school's alumni network on June 12th. More information at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. Thank you, listeners, for continuing to listen, and I'll catch you next week on Is It Legal? <laughs>